0: There are actually seven Exodus types in the Book of Mormon. Two of them are extremely important. One is when Lehi's family leaves Jerusalem. That is an Exodus from Jerusalem. Uh, The other one is when uh, Messiah leads the people of Nephi away from the land of Nephi, and they discover Zarahemla. But in the Bible, after the Exodus, there is a period of colonization and conquest. It's actually really bloody. It's the bloodiest part of the Bible. This is when the Lord commands that all of the enemies be killed, and uh, they're put under the ban, and uh, Joshua is merciless in in his conquest and colonization. Now, the Book of Mormon doesn't have that conquest and colonization scene. It presents Lehi and his family landing in the New world as they're coming to a place that has no people in it. But if you look at the second Exodus scene, where they discover the land of Zarahemla, the Book of Mormon goes to great lengths to present that as everyone is really happy and the Mulekites joined the the Nephites and they became one people. But the text does not say that. If If you read the text carefully, you see that there's always a split between the native Zarahemlans and their culture and religion and the Nephites. And those splits uh, caused three major wars, two in Alma and one in Helaman, where followers of Nehor, who was, who was an original, uh, you know, was preaching what was very likely the original Zarahemlin religion, uh, tried to take the kingdom back because the Nephites came in and all of a sudden they were king. And we're supposed to believe that this happened naturally. The, the Mulekites were perfectly happy to surrender the seat of government to uh, the Nephites. But the text shows a very different picture if you read it carefully.
1: It is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And uh, excited because on what may very well be the very biggest week of his life, he said, you know what? I know we're we're moving across the world and all of the things, but Michael Austin has said the cultural hall is so important. It's so very important that uh, you know closing on a house be damned. Helping my wife move and pack things. Nope, I'm going to spend some time with you. So I appreciate you being uh, here in the cultural hall with us, Michael. Well,
0: thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
1: Uh it's exciting week. You uh previously uh not in the state of Utah and then you decided to take a position at uh Snow College, which for people who don't know Utah, uh won't know that that's kind of by Manti and the Manti Temple, but it's uh sort of a smaller, what do we call it, a junior college in the middle? Junior college,
0: point? yeah. Uh it's a mainly transfer institution, though we do have two four year programs. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually a wonderful college community. I I think that I would have loved to have been a part of this when I was 18 and an undergraduate.
1: Uh, A significant thing for members of the church, they'll remember that when the Manti Temple was going to be sort of renovated and they said, we're going to take the walls down and everyone went up in arms and went, Minerva Tiker paintings, let's not do that they announced that there would be a temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints there in Ephraim so i'm imagining that that's fairly close to campus so that students who are there are able to either walk or very quickly you know jog to the temple
0: it's very close pretty much everything in an ephraim in ephraim is walkable uh it's about 4 blocks from the campus and the manti temple is it's like 8 miles so it you know it will save people a lot of time and energy
1: well, especially UE for mites. You know what I'm saying. It's as we get towards. Yeah. It, <laughs> that's great. That's great. So let so let me ask you a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you have a, a new project that we're going to get into probably more in the second and third blocks of this episode. But that uh, that question that everyone hates to be able to answer. But like, who are you? Why? What? What? who are you
0: so i am by day i am a provost uh the vice president for academic affairs at snow college which i have been here for almost three months uh, i have served in two other institutions as the provost uh, one catholic and one methodist institution hmm. um so i i'm in my 16th year of provosting and uh, before that i was uh, 11 years as a professor of english and world literature at a small college in West Virginia, Shepherd College.
1: Okay. Now, uh, um, it, what what's the draw to someone wanting to be a a, a provost? Are you hoping to one day be a uh, university professor? Is that sort of the track that you're doing, or is there a, a specific... university
0: professor or oh, university sorry, president?
1: You, yeah, university presidenting.
0: Um, that is that is a track. It's actually becoming a less common track than it used to be. Many presidents now are coming from the advancement fundraising um, wing of the university or are coming from corporate positions. And that reflects the fact that, uh, that most college presidents, especially at private universities, private colleges, spend most of their time raising money, mm. which is the provost then is the usually the second in command at the college or university and does a lot of the things that the president used to do so that the president can raise raise money uh i am very happy being a provost and provosting uh, i'm not sure that i would be as happy being a president especially if it were primarily a fundraising position
1: and, and interesting and worth noting that you mentioned that uh, you had provosted at uh, other uh religious institutions but snow college is not a religious snow institution. college
0: is not a religious institution it is a state school uh, and that was really what I was looking for when I moved here was a state supported school in a in a growing area after two provost positions at private universities in the Midwest, which um, which are are contracting right now. I mean, it's a very difficult time for that entire region and for that sector.
1: And, so, and so, so you come to utah you are you from here born and raised what's what's the so story? i was born
0: in Provo. my parents were attending byu i only lived here for one year um we moved to southern california and then when i was seven we moved to tulsa oklahoma and i spent the rest of my growing years in oklahoma i, I returned to byu like a salmon seeking the place that he was <laughs> on. um I got my my bachelor's and my master's degree uh, in English from BYU. Uh, then I went to the University of California at Santa Barbara, um, which was 30 miles away from Ventura, where I lived until I was seven, and I uh, got my doctorate there. And then I uh, did uh, 11 years in West Virginia, eight years in Wichita, Kansas, seven years in Evansville, Indiana, and now I'm here. Yeah.
1: Well, so a couple things along with that, then I should be calling you Dr. Austin, so I appreciate uh, appreciate. No, because then
0: people will want me to help them, and <laughs> I
1: will not do that. No, no thanks. I do not want to help people. And all the while, all the travels, all the different communities, always a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At yes,
0: me? I am an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day
1: Saints. Uh, all along the way, in <laughs> the different areas, different experiences yes. as far as that goes? Yes, Let me ask. Always been the case. Do you find what most people, uh, some people, speak very fondly of, others people not so fondly of, that it's the same everywhere you go?
0: Um, The same as far as just like when you
1: when you go to church, you feel like you're at home. I know that some people are like, I want it to feel different if I'm going to church in Africa than if I'm going to church in Provo. Some people really like that. Did you find it to be the same, or did you find that it had its different quirks?
0: It's very similar. Um, you know, I, I it's not too different in in each of the places that I've lived. the The ward dynamics are a little bit different outside of Utah, especially in areas like Oklahoma and Kansas and Indiana, where there are very few members of the church. Um, there there tends to be uh, something of a split among Utah- born and native born lines. That is a lot like the the split between the Hellenizers and the Judaizers that Paul describes in First Corinthians, <laughs> with many of the same controversies.
1: Yeah. yeah, interesting. I like I like that relationship and that parallel that you've given us. So, uh, so then you decide, just like you made that comment of you know the salmon going back. You were Utah before, now you're Utah again, and is Utah where you'll finish out uh, your professional career? Do you suppose?
0: That is my intention, I believe so. Uh, There were several reasons for this. My wife's uh, family is in Utah, her her mother and two of her sisters, so she has been anxious to to return to Utah. My family is still in Oklahoma. Uh, But also a lot of my professional life is here. When I graduated from from my doctoral program, I did uh, 18th century British literature, which was, was restoration literature, but it was the restoration of the monarchy of 1660 that I studied. Mm -hmm. um and i did world literature and i did all of my publishing and my first two books were on 18th century british literature and that was like the focus of my career i'd always had this nagging i really ought to study mormon literature because that's the only thing i can speak authentically on as part of the community i'm an outsider in every other kind of literature but with this this is my home culture this is uh, this is what I know the best, and I'm going to feel more integrated as a person if I do that. So I, um, I had always had a, a percentage of my scholarly life has always been with Mormon literature. Uh, that went from about 10% when I was in West Virginia. I think I published two articles uh, during that 11 years. And by the time I was coming to the end of my career in Indiana, it was at about 100%. Um, I was on the Dialogue Board of Directors, and I am still on the Dialogue Board of Directors. Uh, I am one of the founders of BCC Press and spend a lot of time in Utah with that. Uh, I have come to a number of conferences. I'm involved in the Association for Mormon Letters and the Mormon History Association. So I was finding myself coming to Utah four or five times a year. For professional reasons. And my wife was coming two or three times a year for personal reasons. So it made a lot of sense for me to look at positions here. And Snow College was just an ideal position for my particular skill set.
1: Uh, you know, I want to get into, and maybe we just cue it up, but I do have one more question um, for you before we kind of move on. Uh, we're going to be talking about the testimony testimony of two nations, how the Book of Mormon reads and rereads the Bible. That's going to be the yes. main thrust of this conversation. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see the cover of the book. If you aren't, you can find and uh, be able to pre-order or order, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, that book and be able to purchase it. Uh, higher education in the United States is, is evolving, and it seems like— um, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, in some ways, the uh, the churches is, is leading a lot of the the change uh, within education. Uh, I look at examples of like BYU Pathways, but then I look at some of the other. You know, what was once a four-year degree is now a three-year degree, and people are able to be saving money. Talk to me about the change in higher education in general, and then how the church is playing a role in it. Uh, so
0: higher education is changing in a lot of ways, um, comparable to the way that other knowledge industries are changing. Um, and th- I could I could do a whole hour on this. I don't and- want a whole and- hour. Quite <laughs> a bit more, uh, but... Um, there's a lot of legislative pressure to make college shorter and less expensive mm-hmm. um, and to put a lot to put as much as possible of college credit into the high schools through concurrent enrollment courses, uh, the three-year degree. And right now that is not, has not been approved for domestic students. That is an international degree, the pathways program. Um, so that's, that's something that is, evolving right now but but right now there's a pilot program that uh the church schools are doing and that is having quite a quite an effect on the northwest commission for accreditation and a lot of other schools and states and state legislatures are very interested because it brings down the price of higher education mm-hmm. um so and and yes the church with byu idaho and ensign college is leading there Um, One of the things that if you if you look at Mormon history long enough, is that Mormons are just weird enough and have always been weird enough that a whole lot of legal and institutional decisions are made because of Mormons. So this goes all the way back to Reynolds versus the United States. And, you know, you still see that case cited in religious freedom cases. Um, BYU. It has been a test case for a lot of Title IX exemptions. Um, they've been a test case for a number of religious freedom exemptions, and and so that BYU has also propelled. They are they are probably the the most um, probably the largest and the most uh, frequently litigated uh, private university. So among small among large private universities uh byu really is in a surprising amount of the caseloads there for how policies are determined hmm. um and well I, uh, I, you know i think that yes they are leading out on this global three-year degree
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, i think that was inevitable sure. that, that those walls have been getting pressure for years that that's going to happen but i think that uh you know, the church schools have the resources and have the, the program, the Pathways program, which I, I think is an excellent program. And I'm very proud that the church is doing that. But that uh, that proved to be a very good test case for a three-year degree. So the BYUs and, and Mormonism in general is a, has been a test case for a lot of different propositions in education, uh, but also with other kinds of laws and societies. It's, you know, it, it is a... a laboratory for how the freedom of religion works i think in this country
1: yeah yeah well said i like that uh and not an hour long which i appreciate you were able to (laughs) uh let's take a break real quick when we come back in the second block i'm gonna have you cue us up as to what this book is all about the testimony of two nations we'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall BestDJinUtah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a BestDJinUtah.com ad. And well, the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really, because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them yes, hopefully, and then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you, uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello o belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at Utah, and uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable, yes. Over 400 five-star reviews, yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah, uh-huh, go on. It's best. DJ in Utah.com, And I'll give you a little hint. It also helps me to be able to do this, like financially support the cultural hall through that. And you get something in return. Hi, friends. Dan the
0: Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop, and they start at only $29 a month. And it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com.
1: In the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, we would hope that you would be so. Uh, A couple reasons why. One is that your monetary support helps us to feel validated in that the content that we're providing for you is valuable to you. So that's one thing. Second thing, though, is you get these episodes well in advance of when they actually publish. You're able to see the videos and you're able to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the Patreon saints are hanging out. So do that, won't you please? Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall to become a Patreon saint. So I, uh, you know, I get this little gift in the mail the other day uh, and it's, this book. It's the testimony of two nations. This is a University of Illinois Press uh, that you have collaborated with, and and then you sort of read the the uh, byline or the second line of it. It's how the Book of Mormon reads and rereads the Bible, and I want I want you to uh, as we're talking about this. I want you to to uh, consider that you're talking to that, not a dumb friend, but kind of a dim friend, because I already don't know that I understand like the whole, w- what we're even talking about here. So what is this book about?
0: So this book, and i just to give you a little bit of a basis for it. Um, it's the kind of work that I did in my doctoral dissertation and in one of my early books except that i wasn't looking at the way that the book of mormon read the bible i was looking at the way that 17th and 18th century british literature read the bible okay um and i was using uh, a kind of a method uh that we call typology uh looking at the way that um symbols in the old testament are predictive of christ in the new testament and then there's quite a bit of research showing that that there becomes another layer of typology right. with uh, I you know the the books the four books that I wrote both my dissertation and my my second book on were um, Paradise Lost, Pilgrim's Progress, Robinson Crusoe, and Pamela by Samuel Richardson. Mm-hmm. That was my dissertation, and then my book was on uh, Paradise Regained, Pilgrim's Progress Part Two um farther adventures of robinson crusoe and pamela part two so i took the sequels and i looked at the way that the sequels interacted with the original text and argued that this was very similar to the way that the new testament uh interacted with the old testament because in order to create the christian bible in order to create the christian canon the new testament had to do something with the old testament because it's not obvious and apparent that the New Testament has anything to do with the New Testament. Uh, You know, the Hebrew Bible um, does not mention Christ. It mentions the Messiah. It does so in ways that don't really have much to do with how the Messiah uh, ended up being in the New Testament. So beginning with the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, works very hard to establish that certain symbols uh in the old testament are really speaking of Jesus Christ. Okay. When when Abraham sacrifices Isaac, this is a type. And a type is just a symbol that works in reverse. So it's an anticipatory symbol of uh of Christ sacrificing or I'm sorry of God sacrificing his only begotten son. Um and and this goes throughout the Bible and, and over two thousand years almost every passage of the Bible and almost every character in the Bible has been reread as a type of Christ and therefore a type of the new Testament. Mm. So that provides a lot of unity between the two books, but it's a unity that's built entirely on the sequel or the second book. Uh, People who, who uh, read the Hebrew Bible, not as the old Testament, but as the Hebrew Bible don't see any of that in the text. So that's a textual relation that's created by the second text, uh, to connect itself retroactively to the first text making oh, sense so far?
1: Yeah. 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 So then I guess my question is, is, you know, within uh, you know, Mormon thought or whatever, when, when we consider this as another Testament uh, we're and walk with me on this, let me make sure that as I'm speaking this out loud, uh, that uh, it's, that we could would consider that that is a type of uh, like Christ, Christian literature that could stand alone from the Bible and and speak of Christ but we also believe that it 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 uh, you know it interacts it interplays there are the same types and stories and symbols and all yes. that as the same okay
0: exactly so so what i what i'm saying here is that when we try to understand how the book of mormon relates to the bible uh-huh. we have i think only two historical examples of this happening with texts one is the way that the new testament relates itself to the old testament and one is the way that virgil in the aeneid um positions himself with the homeric epics the Iliad and the odyssey okay and in both cases the later text is presenting itself as a, a continuation of and as a part of the same canon as the original texts and um that's actually a pretty tricky thing to do uh because all of the relationships have to be built with the, the ultimate text so the, the main argument of the book is that if you want to understand the Book of Mormon's relationship to the Bible, you need to look at the New Testament's relationship to the Old Testament because it's the same tools. It's typology. Uh, there's another concept called the type scene, which really comes from Homeric criticism. But it's, it's stories that repeat themselves with a difference. And so, you're, so the, the New Testament isn't just... Uh, extending the, the Hebrew Bible, it's, mm-hmm. it's revising it and turning it into the Old Testament. And the Book of Mormon does that with the Bible as well, through typology and type scenes and other kinds of textual mechanisms uh, that create a canon. Because what we're really talking about here is canon creation. And uh, much of the kind of analysis that I do here Uh, is called Canonical Criticism, and it was pioneered in the 1970s by Brevard Childs at Yale and a number of other theologians who were looking at the way that that the different books of the Bible all relate to each other as part of the same canon. And when you put things in a canon, they all have a relationship with every other thing in that canon that is more important than their relationship uh, to anything else, to any other text so uh to understand the book of mormon i'm i'm saying to understand it in its canonical context the context of the bible and the book of mormon and some of the other restoration scriptures depending on the denomination they accept different ones but uh at least the bible and the book of mormon the book of mormon relates itself retroactively to the bible in in ways that i think are really quite fascinating can i give you an example
1: uh yes, I will allow it. <laughs>
0: okay, so uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible is the Exodus,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and this has a lot to do with Charlton Heston, and <laughs> a lot to do with the uh, you know the the great myth of Moses um, leading the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt and to the promised land. Mm-hmm. So that's a big story in the Exodus, that, that big old Bible narrative. There are actually seven Exodus types in the Book of Mormon. Two of them are extremely important. One is when Nephi's family leaves Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. That is an Exodus from Jerusalem. Uh, The other one is when uh, Messiah leads the people of Nephi away from the land of Nephi, and they discover Zarahemla. Both of those are Exodus scenes, and they're very clearly connected textually. I mean, they invoke, Nephi especially invokes the Exodus uh, in what he is doing. So these are very clearly Exodus-type scenes. But in the Bible, after the Exodus, there is a period of colonization and conquest. It's actually really bloody. It's the bloodiest part of the Bible. This is when the Lord commands that all of the enemies be killed, and uh, they're put under the ban, and uh, Joshua is merciless in, in his conquest and colonization. Um, now, the Book of Mormon doesn't have that conquest and colonization scene. It presents Lehi and his family landing in the New World as they're coming to a place that has no people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a a lot of debate about whether that's actually true. Um, but if you look at the second Exodus scene, where they discover the land of Zarahemla, the Book of Mormon goes to great lengths to present that as everyone is really happy and the Mulekites joined the uh, the Nephites and they became one people. But the text does not say that. If you, if you read the text carefully, you see that there's always a split between the native Zarahemlans and their culture and religion and the Nephites and those splits uh, caused three major wars, two in Alma and one in Helaman, where followers of Nehor, who was who was an original, uh, you know, was preaching what was very likely the original Sarah Hamlin religion, uh, try to take the kingdom back because the Nephites came in and all of a sudden they were king. And we're supposed to believe that this happened naturally. And the, the Mulekites were perfectly happy to surrender the seat of government to uh, the Nephites. But the text shows a very different picture if you read it carefully. You see that these wars become the same kind of colonization wars that we see in the Bible. That exodus type seems to be suppressing uh, that third act of colonization and conquest. You know, act one, you leave, act two, you wander, mm-hmm. act three, you conquer this land. Um, but, but it doesn't stay repressed. And, and most of the violence in both Alma and Helaman um, is some configuration of Nephites fighting native Zarahemblins who have allied with the Lamanites for some or another uh, extent or time. So what, what you get if you read that as a type scene you you get of course this is a, co- a colonization and a conquest. That's how the type scene works, and typology shows the recurrence of historical patterns. And the idea that the Nephites marched in and the Hamlet said, "Oh great, you're here. You speak our language better than we do. We're going to make you our kings." That goes against everything we know about human cultures, about how human cultures work. Sure, that doesn't happen. So so you get. You get an exodus and a conquest, but you have to pull it out of the text. And the fourth chapter of the book does exactly that. It pulls that out of the text.
1: Let me ask you this about that, though, because I think the critics of the church would just be like, yeah, you know what? Joseph Smith probably, you know, maybe he understood some things and he saw, you know, maybe he understood on a deeper level than we give him credit for that there was an exodus and then, you know, there was some conquest and he sort of wove that into what he wrote as the Book of Mormon. What? Is is it um is it to say that we just feel like that uh you know scripture or uh canonical uh workings would, would flow that way, or is there something that would be distinctive to say, oh, it's clear that he could not have copied this because of this or aside from this or adjacent to this?
0: So my audience for this book uh is both Latter-day Saints but also um religious studies scholars and seminaries who don't really know what to make of the book of Mormon. okay uh i am agnostic on the question of book of mormon historicity sure i do not take a position on that because the canonical the canonical method that i'm employing um says in effect this is the text this is what people use this is what we've got to deal with mm-hmm. and and uh and the context that matters the most is the canon that it's situated in okay so i think that everything i'm saying reads exactly the same whether you assume that this is a a work of fiction by joseph smith or an actual historical record uh by um pre-columbian americans Uh, i I mean you don't have to answer that question for this book to make sense sure um because either way the, the mechanisms of canonical interpretation and canon formation and typology and type scenes, uh, whether you think it's as a 19th century context or an ancient American context, the most important context is the canon that it's in, which includes the Bible and the Book of Mormon.
1: So then as you kind of enter yourself in that and you have these people, those of, of other faiths or who may have disregarded uh, the Book of Mormon as part of that canon, is it Is the case to be made that it's like, yeah, bring it in. Of course, these are stories or like how I I guess the thing that I always wonder is, is the Book of Mormon is such a distinct uh, either claim or book of scripture or whatever, however we want to kind of uh, label that, that there are several people that I think just disregard it completely out of hand. Do people take this adventure within this book because they're trying to understand more about how it could be within that realm? Or is it for some other understanding? Or I, I'm acceptance? not
0: trying to convince anybody okay. uh, uh, that the Book of Mormon belongs with the Bible. Okay. I'm trying to explain how Latter-day Saints see the Book of Mormon and how the Book and... of Mormon functions as part of that canon. Okay. There are a lot of Jewish people in the world that don't think the Old Testament has much to do with the New Testament. Sure. You know, that that does not go without saying that the Old Testament really is all about Jesus. Right. So the new the, the Christian church, when it emerged, adopted both the Old Testament and the New Testament as part of its canon and worked very hard t- textually to make those connections. I think that the Book of Mormon and the various restoration denominations do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you are part of that context, this makes a lot of sense. And if you're not, it makes no sense at all. Right, that's that's the exact same relationship that that uh, Christians have to Jewish scholars. Yeah, you know the 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 Bible as one coherent entity only makes sense from a Christian canonical context. It makes no sense from the context of the
1: Hebrew Bible. That's it. It, it, I uh, as I'm just kind of listening to you, I'm like, yeah, okay, that that makes uh, that that uh, that makes some sense to me. And then I start to think, well, if if the context that, that people would be coming from that, that aren't within our faith would be to just try and understand it more, is it those that are just wanting to have a greater understanding of, of where uh, Mormon people are coming from? Or what would be the draw for them if it's not a part of their world, say, like a Jewish scholar who only studies the Old Testament to study the New Testament? Is it just because they're expanding their base of knowledge and, you know, e- empathy for others? Or or what's the draw to study the the greater, you know, bigger piece? Uh-
0: I think there are a lot of people in the world who just want to know what other faith systems and other philosophical systems believe. Yeah. You know, there are some very, very fine Jewish New Testament scholars, and there are some very fine Christian uh, Quranic scholars. Um, And they write and they read because they want to understand how this canonical relationship works. That's who I'm aiming for here, and I'm Mm. also aiming the book to Latter-day Saints to understand better how their own scriptures work together. But I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to enter any debate about historicity sure. or theology yeah. or doctrine. I don't want to have those fights. Sure, um, That's not, that's not how I see my, my role in this universe is not to defend a position. I'm trying to explain some very, you know, I'm, I'm a literary critic. I'm a textual critic. Mm-hmm. My whole life has been reading texts very carefully and try to, say what they mean and that's what i'm trying to do here i'm trying to read the book of mormon the way that i think it sees itself in relationship to the bible whether that's through a 19th century context or uh, an ancient american context uh, that question is really irrelevant to the project the book sure. of mormon has an authorship yeah and that authorship positions itself To the bible in a way that is very similar to the way that the new testament positions itself to the hebrew bible and there are mechanisms that make those connections work and those are the ones that i'm trying to explain and i i studied them for 20 years just as biblical connections i mean i studied the bible and 18th century literature using a lot of these same tools and i think they're much more applicable to the book of mormon because that that canonical relationship is the only it, it's the most important context. So let me put it this way: mm-hmm. there is a huge debate in Mormon studies between those who place the Book of Mormon in a nineteenth-century American context and those who place it in uh, a pre-Columbian American context. Well, what all we mean by a context is what other texts do we read in order to understand this one?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, do we do we read sermons uh, from the nineteenth century or do we read? Um, Jewish works from the Babylonian period, or do we read Mayan scrolls? I mean, when we ask what the context is, we're asking for an interpretive context. We're asking into what body of work should we situate this text in order to understand it better? And I think there's a lot to say for both the 19th century American context and the uh, ancient American um, context, historical context. And a lot of great work has been done using both of those contexts. But on the Book of Mormon's own terms, the context that matters most is the biblical Book of Mormon canon. Those are the texts that matter the most. And that is true of every canon. So so I think that the texts of the Bible are more helpful for interpreting the Book of Mormon than either... um, mayan scrolls or um, puritan sermons from the 1820s Mm -hmm. so if we want to know the interpretive context that the book of mormon imagines for itself it's a canonical context and it's comprised of all of the books of the old and new testaments and itself
1: Uh, I want to take another break real quick. When we come back, I want to uh, explore a little bit um, uh, about that value. I'm going to ask you to take off your Ph.D. hat and talk to me a little bit about it from, from a personal aspect. We'll get to that and I'll explain exactly what I mean as we come back in the third block of the Cultural Hall.
0: affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com.
1: Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email, contact at com. It never closes and you can send us the email that says, Michael Austin was the greatest guest you've ever had in the cultural hall. And you can also say, you know what? Get Michael Austin back on. There's a couple of questions I'd like you to ask in proxy of myself. And we could maybe do something like that in the future of a uh, another episode. Uh, it's contact at the cultural Would love to hear from you uh, and any other guest suggestions or things that you feel like we should be doing. We welcome it always contact at the cultural So removing then your, your Dr. I don't know if it's a doctor cap, a doctor's hat, uh, you know, whatever. A tam! Ah, a doctor's... removing your here. doctor's tam. Oh, he's got one.
0: That's <laughs> my, my doctor cap.
1: All right, so then removing your doctor's it. tam. Okay. How, how how or has it been valuable to your testimony to be able to study these things?
0: So what I found uh, in all of the projects that I've done on the Book of Mormon, which also includes. This book, Buried Treasures, which is a, a series of blog posts that I did in, in 2016 while reading, you know, I did them while reading the Book of Mormon. What it's taught me is that whatever you say about its origins, the Book of Mormon is an incredibly complex textual document. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it has layers of meaning and layers of narrative uh, that are really uh, unprecedented uh, in most of the world's literature. And it is is a strong enough book and a complex enough narrative to sustain extremely close readings. And that actually is something that I find very important um, from from a a perspective of faith. You know, the sacred text, the signature sacred text of the church um, has a lot to offer. and says a lot of important things and has a lot of layers of meaning, and supports a very deep reading. And I that I will stand by um, forever.
1: You know, a, a popular discussion, and, and maybe you want to weigh in on this, or maybe you don't, uh, but I'll ask the question just the same. Uh, it seems more and more, as years go by, I hear more and more about people saying, historicity or historical or not, the lessons that could be learned uh, about you know treating one another about god and his divinity about all these things not only in the old testament and new testament but the book of mormon that even if we were to set those aside or something were to come out and say clearly these things were all you know written by man with a with a god and his son in mind that they are still just incredibly valuable in in um curating and creating a life, where do you weigh in that? Or do you care to weigh in on that?
0: So I think that they are valuable. I I think that the the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon have a lot of uh, really important lessons in them. Um, They also all have a lot of very disturbing things in them. (laughs) Uh, So the process of creating a life around them, I think, is really a reading process, Hmm. uh, because we have to read... You know, like I was just saying with the uh, the conquest of Canaan and the conquest of Zarahemla, those are fairly disturbing things. yeah, and I, I kind of hope that those things didn't actually happen. I, I'm okay for those things to be fiction. Mm-hmm. I actually prefer it. Um, I one of the things that I do in this book is I, I do not, I try to read it as history, which means that I think there's a lot of room for narrative bias. There's a lot of room for just what happens over a thousand years. There's a lot of room for myth that becomes legend. Um, I think that that trying to read the Book of Mormon or the Bible as a completely unified document is is to read it as fiction, because that's how fiction works. Mm -hmm. History is messy. History is written by people who win wars. History ignores perspectives. History is biased. And all of the things that when we say that something is historical, we have to really mean that. Mm-hmm. And, and that means dealing with a lot of really messy and even doctrinally messy things. So I think that how we read any of our scriptures. I have read most of the world's scriptures, and, and ha- ha- that has been a wonderful experience. I've read the Quran twice. Um, I've read... Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada. I've read a number of texts from uh, the Zoroastrian religion. All of them can be used to build a life around, and all of them require some skill uh, in determining what is and what is not valuable or faith-promoting. So I, I, I don't think that the Book of Mormon or the Bible are uniquely valuable. I think they are valuable along with many other texts.
1: So so then hearing that I sort of think that it, it is um and you've made mention of this before that you know the value that we find in reading the Old Testament, New Testament and Book of Mormon is sort of the like the the main structure or main scaffolding of these things but we live in a day and age where anyone who has an any sort of you know YouTube blog uh X or Twitter you know there's all sorts of those commentaries where do those things like that play into helping us really you know be able to either come to know Jesus or you know deepen a uh, uh, faith or 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 what's what if any is the value of that outside um sort of commentary to bring into a discussion like this
0: None of us has enough time to think all the thoughts that can be thought
1: <laughs> Well all
0: by ourselves <laughs> so i think it's helpful to see what other people think too um i think it's helpful to see how other people read ultimately you know one of the one of the really tragic things about the human brain is that it was not designed to seek truth Mm. it was designed to defend positions that were arrived at for other reasons and you can do this with the bible you can do this with the book of mormon you could find all sorts of things in there, and you can support almost any kind of life. Mm. So ultimately, that decision has to be ours. What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of people do we want to be? If I want to be racist and sexist and homophobic, if I want to uh, be a uh, triumphalist who believes that my religion is true and others, other people are lesser, I will find support for that in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. If I want to be inclusive and compassionate and caring, and if I want to believe that, uh, that that all people have truth and value, I will find support for that in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. All of these texts are big enough to support all kinds of different ways of life. So we're not, I don't believe we're going to get to the true way to live by reading these texts. Mm. Those are decisions we have to make, I think, much more viscerally. Uh, and then we will be able to find support for that in all kinds of texts.
1: In uh, in sort of the the silly part of my brain, I think when you're hearing these texts discussed in your church observance, is there lots of times where you want to just just interject and be like, "Okay, well, maybe uh, what you just said," but also, and then you find yourself going, "Maybe this is not the time or the place to get into." I
0: rarely like make comments. Um, Though I have taught priesthood and Sunday school a lot, and I, uh-huh. I try to bring in when I teach, I try to bring in. You know, I I know where the lines are. I know what you can't say. I know what you're expected to do when you're representing the church, and that's uh-huh. fine. Uh, I don't make a lot of comments because um, a thirty second comment just is not enough to convey the complexity of how some of these texts work.
1: And 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 to me, there's a a small part of that that um that like you, you you know you yourself and you're not alone in this there's lots of people who don't feel like they can comment because though they may believe similarly to other people to just do something in a soundbite doesn't allow the opportunity to be able to expand the greater context of what they're thinking or of, of what they believe or all of those things and and, and so the people that we hear are the, are the same people saying the same things and then none of us grow. So come on, Michael, say something every once in a while and and, and uh, stir it up. Well, a I, bit.
0: you know, I've written over 300 posts for By Common Consent. Uh, I've written um, now books on Job and the Book of Mormon and a whole lot of stuff on Mormon literature. I say a lot of things, <laughs> but you, you choose where you say things. Yep. And I I don't see it as my role to be controversial in a church meeting where a whole lot of people are looking for things that promote the faith and help them to feel the spirit. Uh, I have, I I, have, I am not shy about writing and speaking about what I, what I think, Yeah, but there's a time and a place, time, place and manner.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Cause there are also uh, those people that we all know if we, ask a question thing, I remind the ones that you feel like are every time they say something, it is to be antagonistic or at very least, you know, controversial as to what the subject matter in the class is. And you just sort of go, Oh, here we oh, They're going to have to call on them at some point. Are we doing this now? Everyone hold on. Here it comes. Um, you mentioned, uh you, you know, all these works, these different posts that you do, certainly this uh, latest one, again, that people are going to be able to get. You can just click in the show notes and be able to do a, a quick either pre-purchase or purchase of it. The testimony of two nations, how the Book of Mormon reads and rereads the Bible. Are there other things that are hanging out in the ethos that you're like, yep. I'm ready for this. This is this is something that I'm going to take on that hasn't been taken on before or oh man I can't I'm, I'm salivating intellectually salivating as I look for this to be introduced to people.
0: I think um where I'm going to go now with most of the rest of my career I think is going to go back to what I'm what I've done most of my life and that's the literature.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's looking at both the development of literature within the Mormon community and also the way that Mormons are represented in the literature of the United States and other countries.
2: Mm.
0: You know, that's really where my passion is, and that's really where my competencies lie. So um, that's that's really my intention now is to focus. I, I've been working on um, several projects with uh, with two different librarians at BYU. Um, Rachel Helps and I have wrote, written articles for the... Um, Journal of Mormon History and BYU Studies on the literature curriculum of the Early Relief Society and the early uh, MIA, the the Men's and Women's Mutual Improvement Association. And then um, Rebecca Wiederholder and I are right now working on uh, some articles on the curriculum of the academies like Snow. And like, you know, there were about 35 of these academies um, that that sprang up uh, between about 1888, and they they divested themselves in about 1930 and some of them became public schools and some of them just closed and, i'm and, interested it, in how literature was taught in the church
1: and, and then uh, subsequently sort of formed how those people and that group or how the church and those that believed is it the intersection of that or just what were they were taught and what that might have have led through? led through
0: what were they taught how did what how did that shape their view of the world how did their view of the world shape the way that they saw literature
1: huh. Huh. It's a pretty fascinating thing. Do you find that uh, a lot of the people that kind of connect with you and are really drawn to you are uh, academics like yourself? Or, or is there a a fairly healthy pocket of of just your average church-going people that find literature to be fascinating and are are sort of drawn to you?
0: So I spent the first 15 years of my career learning how to write like a professor. <laughs> and then I spent the last 15 years learning how not to write like a professor.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So I have I have books like... The Buried Treasures, which is not aimed at an academic audience at all. This is mm-hmm. something that is aimed at uh, at anyone. And, and I have a lot of devotional work. I'm actually going to be putting out a book collection of, of devotional writings next year uh, with BCC Press. Um, but I also have books that are very academic. And both the Vardis Fisher book and the Testimony of Two Nation books, these are books that, that are situated within an academic um, context. And are, are probably going to be most appreciated by by people who study either in Mormon studies or religious biblical studies generally. Yeah,
1: you know there are uh, three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I will ask those of you right now. Right. First question is: Is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it?
0: I do not have a calling um, because I have not moved into my ward yet. Mm-hmm. So no until problem. October, I was I was the priesthood teacher in my ward. Okay. Um, I am now living in an apartment and attending the ward that I'm going to be moving into Wednesday and uh, cannot be issued a calling until
1: I'm official. Oh, Uh, that's interesting, because I feel like there have been other times where, like, I breathe near the building and the people have been like, we need you. I know you're not living here yet. Go ahead and call. But good, good, good for you. Probably something. uh, Here's what it is. It's something that you and your wife are going to do, and they got to wait till she gets here, too.
0: But I, I expect that I will have a calling. Um, before I was priest or teacher, I was the teacher of the 14- and 15-year-olds.
1: Wow, okay. Um,
0: so I I have done things.
1: Certain amount certain amount of bravery for you to to be able to teach that age. If you could pick a calling—this is the second question— if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick?
0: I would always pick Gospel Doctrine.
1: Okay, okay, now let and me well, ask you this. Now, now here's the uh, the step two of that question. You're teaching gospel doctrine, but you only get to teach one year. Which gospel are you teaching? Are you doing Old Testament? Are we New Testament? Are you Book of Mormon? Old Testament. Okay. Okay. If that happens, make sure that's available on Zoom. I'd watch that.
0: I do. I connect deeply to the Old Testament. And uh, I find it just an endlessly fascinating series of texts.
1: And I appreciate people like you uh, that can unlock it for people like me, because I find it the most where I'm just like, okay, okay. uh, We got a year of this. I'm going to reward myself with snacks when I read. We'll get to stuff I understand soon enough. But I have had teachers along the way that have said, okay, we're going to look at the Old Testament this way and have been able to unlock parts of it. And I go, okay, at least the next year is not a wash. I'm not going to love it maybe as much as I love some of the others, but I'm grateful for people, uh, individuals like yourself, that are able to do that. Uh, Then the final question is, and we ask you to interpret this however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith.
0: So, my favorite part of my faith is having a people. You know, I I doubt I would have ever converted to the Latter Day Saint Church if I had not been born in it. Hmm. Um, I, it, it's not something that I that I would have found intellectually compelling, but I find it extremely gratifying to be part of a people and a tradition um, and a spiritual language that I share with millions of people worldwide and uh, I think that it is it's important to have a faith community and it's important to have a people to love. That's a poem that Joanna Brooks wrote uh, uh, a few years ago how wonderful it is to have a people to love and I, I absolutely support that.
1: Uh, And Joanna Brooks, one of uh, my favorite guests here in the cultural hall that we've had before. She's absolutely spectacular. Uh, We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat on the back row. We really gotta go on the cultural hall show.